Hi guys and welcome to another episode of Hitchhiker's Guide to Nuclear. I'm your host Gunther with my co-host Gail. Hello. On this month's show we'll discuss mutant butterflies rampaging across a Japanese city, the old orange moniker, the future's bright, the future's riddled with radiation, curiosity also getting the better of NASA and we'll talk about Israel having some pretty mild views on what should be done with Iran. Our discussion this month will focus on the aforementioned media-shy Iran. We'll talk about why they're the focus of the West's attention, whether they're actually doing anything wrong, and if so, how and whether this situation will ever be resolved. So we've got two regulars on the show, I suppose, now. Well, Maureen, you've only been on it once, haven't you? Yeah. You've only been on Well, you're classed as a regular now, yeah. aren't you? We've got Maureen and we've got Craig on. There's also a second time for Craig as yeah. well. Yeah, we just want to say before we start, sorry that we haven't really been around the last month and a half, <laughs> uh, so basically since the last recording, purely because me and Gil have working lives. End of year reports. End of year reports, yeah. and we've had virus, I've been in Cornwall, and I dislocated my thumb playing dodgeball. Someone quite adequately put it as, it's not called catchball, it's called dodgeball. So. Right, so, should we get on with it then? In a recent study published in Scientific Reports, researchers have found an increase in the number of leg and wing mutations in butterflies in Japan. According to one of the lead researchers of the report, insects are very resistant to radiation. In that sense, our results are unexpected. Over 100 species were collected in the study from 10 locations in Japan, including the province of Fukushima. There have also been eyewitness accounts of the winged beasts attacking Japanese civilians with laser vision <laughs> and wrestling with an abnormally large robot built from five distinctly 90s-looking vehicles in downtown Tokyo. Onlockers also claim that before this scene played out, five so-called Power Rangers could be seen fighting random people in the street before dancing their way into what can only be described as a very terrible montage. These witness statements obviously have yet to be confirmed. So what do we think of this one, guys? Absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Put it into some sort of context, and obviously this was first came out on the BBC, and it's somewhat come under fire, hasn't it? Really, the report from a lot of people. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true or not. There are obviously going to be people who are going to be on one side or the other. It's quite a thing that diverges people. People who are very pro nuclear are instantly going to try and find anything wrong with it, and then people who are anti nuclear are going to try and find any reason that it's going to be true so just case for more study I suppose I think the the headlines in the media have sort of taken little snippets of it and just blown them up out of all proportion that probably the report wasn't trying to uh, get across I think I think the interview with the report with the researchers kind of did sound like they were trying to say it was a fairly big deal. Like they were trying to say, like you know, well, insects are normally really resistant. So to God knows what's going to happen to humans. Yeah, uh, exactly. That was a sort of sentiment. <laughs> um, but I suppose the significant thing about it, from a lot of people's point of view, is that it's so soon afterwards that they're like, oh, we can already see mutations. What's going to happen to? Well, with short-lived animals, you think oh. about faster, don't they? That's yeah. the whole like, idea. I think is that right? Yeah. How do you mean? Yeah. 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 In a shorter short lifespan, you've uh, like you'll be able to see the mutations faster in, in Ah, yeah. right. That's okay. why you would look okay. at something. So like they're maybe more resistant, this, yeah. but they'll come out faster in ways that you'd notice. Know, yeah. But haven't there? There's been criticism drawn on it because simply because of the um, histographic content of the thing. So the bins that they've used, 
not actual physical bins, obviously for you people out there, but like sort of data ranges, and they've taken sample sizes. Sample sizes, yeah. The sample sizes that they've taken before the incident and then after the incident aren't. Re- I mean, I'm not sure how these well, studies like work generally, but it's it's it seemed like to me knew quite beforehand ca- that they were going to have a nuclear incident, so they had to take loads and loads of sample <laughs> sizes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seemed to me sort of almost like counterintuitive that they would take less. Surely they try and take the same number. Maybe some of the butterfly species have died out as a result. I don't yeah. know. Uh, so they took less after. Yeah, they took less after the incident. That was one of the criticisms drawn on some nuclear oh. blogs. Like Nuclear Diner did yeah, a little they, piece on it. They really didn't like it. Did they, they really didn't like it. They sort of went to town on it. But I think yeah, what you they said. Dined out on it. But uh, <laughs> first crap joke of the podcast. <laughs> I think what Maureen said though. I do get the feeling there was sort of a sentiment there from the researchers, the way it was sort of worded their comments. Obviously, they've been paraphrased in these yeah. articles. And were asked specifically kind of loaded questions, potentially. Yeah, yeah well, it's, I mean, there's no, there's no way, is there, that you could compare this to, you know, sort of human exposure. Yeah. I mean, the it's biology not, is completely different. I mean, the insecticides and things that get used to exterminate these sorts of species can sometimes not affect humans in any way so it's not sometimes it's just not comparable at all but they've got to, they've got to research it somehow haven't they hmm. there's been similar studies that have been done with um, with birds at Chernobyl as well looking at um, defects in wings and brain sizes and things in birds in Chernobyl and other areas so there have been lots of things that have been done but a lot of the time when they draw a line of sort of changes and things the, the line's surprisingly straight even if they do tend to go up a bit but it's it's one of those things whether it's within like standard deviation difference in locations or lots of mm. factors statistical based things like this that can draw conclusions that sometimes aren't actually there so I think looking more towards okay so we've sort of alluded to the fact that maybe the questions that they've been asked are slightly loaded but let's if we went with the fact that they were trying to compare this say to any, any in any sort of way to like human exposure to radiation there was a study released recently that World Nuclear News did a really good article on I'm talking about the real health effects of the uh, Fukushima Daiichi incident. And the main output that came from that report was the fact that the physical and mental exertion placed on people through forced evacuation was probably the main health effect to do with the incident, as opposed to like radiation exposure. That was one of the things with... Um Chernobyl as well as the main health risk of people was it made people young people in particular incredibly reckless because they kind of lived as though they were only going to survive until 30 anyway <coughs> so they actually tended to take more drugs um, even more so than most young people and like were just very rec- reckless and that I think it's quite interesting because uh, statistically they looked at the age groups that were affected most and it was obviously the pensioners and the elderly that yeah. were most at risk because they're essentially being shifted from their homes. They've pretty much lived out all their lives within them. to die in. And yeah, yeah, and not really sure, because the Japanese government, let's say, weren't great in their communication uh, towards these people. And um, a lot of, bearing in mind, a lot of businesses were ruined, like instant, you know, farming and yeah. all that sort of thing. It can be quite damaged in that area. I think those are sort of tending towards them. That, that's why I don't understand why there hasn't been more of a focus in articles in papers to do with Fukushima about sort of evacuation procedures. We've touched on, we've obviously touched on this before with dose, yeah. but I, I'm talking more towards like the health effects 
of the event. It seems strange to me that people haven't touched upon that aspect of it more than. It's not as interesting a headline, is it? No, it's certainly yeah. not interesting a headline. No, but I, I think I, I wonder do many people research that normally the effect of things like evacuations because evacuations tend to happen in poor communities and more remote communities. So mm-hmm. it's just something as a mental health thing is probably not. Uh, investigated a lot in urban areas or in wealthier countries because they just don't have many evacuation situations to deal with, really. I think the, th- the Three Mile Island case was the, the big one because obviously they had data suggesting that one or two people had died as a result of Three Mile Island, so the papers printed that. It turned out it was a car accident because people were panicking and fleeing that area and they sadly died, perished in a car accident. But papers were using that as ammunition against it. Well, look, this is nuclear. Yeah. As if it was almost tending towards the radiation side of it. There was actually some really hard-line press like in that area actually suggesting that it was the radiation affecting their driving which caused them to crash. But, I mean, that was a bit of a stupid... (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe it was radiation that was affecting their driving costs. After watching that uh, film, Chernobyl Diary, the radiation makes your vision go blurry. Oh, yeah, yeah, you didn't... You weren't speaking... You didn't speak about it, did you? No, I had to go. Yeah, you had to go, didn't you? Blooming heck, that film. I don't... I have nightmares about that film, and not for the right reason. (laughs) You might have a horror film. Yeah, yeah, your vision goes blurry, you go blind pretty much instantaneously... So you crash cars, obviously. Yeah, you crash cars, yeah. I mean, that's there we go. Logical conclusion drawn yeah. on, guys. That and Power Rangers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, shall we move on then? Questions have been raised this month concerning the regulations on radio frequency radiation emitted from mobile phones by an investigative arm of the US Congress. It is believed the current radiation limits do not reflect the data drawn from current research, some of which suggest heavy use of mobile phones may lead to an increased probability in developing such things as brain tumours, even though there does actually appear to be no conclusive evidence of a direct link as of yet. Congress is, however, insistent that this atmosphere of confusion only furthers the necessity for a review to actually be conducted this year. So, what do we think about this one, guys? Um. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where to start. Oh, I don't mind. No, what, I mean, what do you think about it? Do you, I mean, they, I, to be honest, I, I really know where to start with it because I've got to admit, I never really questioned it. I no. never even thought about it. And then last, I think it was last year, the world, the WHO, the World Health Organization, raised the issue that it could develop brain tumors. However, later in the year, they said it couldn't. And now, US Congress have come out this year 
I think sort of in tandem with India, because India have raised a similar sort of concerns this year as well. So it's, it seems that they keep doing all these studies and get no conclusive evidence, yet they still keep pursuing it. I mean, maybe because people are using phones more or they're not keeping up with the technology. 3G, 4G, 5G. Yeah, so they, they just want to be better safe than sorry, but how many studies do they have to do before they finally decide there's actually no health risks? I mean, there's been sources in India actually saying that they should have radiation stickers on them, so they should rate the phones in terms of emission. Because it's obviously dependent on the network you're on, the phone that you're actually using. Like, for instance, the iPhone 4, when that first came out, had an all-round aerial, didn't it, around the actual casing. Mm. So they were having, people were having problems, obviously, because yeah. when they were holding the phone, they had, they, had a, they had a huge drop in signal. Depends, like, if you use data roaming, or it's, you know, on all Where sorts you of factors. Your phone and stuff, yeah. If you're on loudspeaker, if you've got it to your ear. Mm. So it's all these sorts of things, but there never seems... To, to me, there's never been, like, a unanimous study or a focused study where they've actually done this. A lot of them seem to be surveys and all this sort of thing, which I find yeah. quite odd. Well, yeah, like the, the letter I was showing you that my brother got about a study at Imperial that they're doing, which is pretty much just a study of how heavy use of a mobile phone affects your health, see if they can link sort of increased um, illness or whatever to phone use. And to be honest, I doubt they're going to find anything from it because... No one has in the past, unless uh, but, but it's kind of different, changed. though. Like I'm, I'm actually sympathetic at the moment to like how biologists must do these kind of studies. Yeah. Because for something like cigarettes, at least they could say people smoke twenty a day or forty a day, and people kind of were honest about it back in the past when they were doing these surveys. And then you had checked how many had cancer and things like that. Mm-hmm. You get some kind of correlation, but. Phones have been around for less time. The way we use them has changed, and we use them more now. So I could see, you know, let's say when our parents first got phones 15 years ago, it was like an emergency-only thing, mm. whereas now everyone uses their phone absolutely constantly. Yeah. So trying to work out how that's going to lead to the long-term development of something like a brain tumour. It's difficult as well, isn't it? Because it theoretically could potentially cause brain tumours, like that the basic biology of it is, like being exposed to radiation by your brain. I suppose like the way the way phones are used as well. I mean, as you said, they don't just use them for calling, so it must be very hard to sort of gauge the regularity at which people yeah. use their phones. I mean, do they have to make like implicit assumptions in their day that people only use them for calls on you know to to the size of their head, which is not true at all, is it? Because obviously people use the internet on it all day now and all this sort of thing. The interesting thing was is that I came across an app and I was really skeptical at first about it. Turns out, though, it's got a hell of a lot of attention behind it. It's been in the New York Times, it's been in lots of uh, publications and papers, and it's called TalkOn, that's T-A-W-K-O-N. Now, if you search for it on iTunes, you can't get it, but if you search for it on Android, you can. Turns out Apple rejected it outright and said it was basically a load of rubbish, and Android took it up. And it's basically an app which actually alerts you when your phone radiation level spikes... And it offers you tips on how to lower it. Now, it's certainly not a radiation detector, because obviously it, it, can't, it just can't do it. You don't have a bloody Geiger counter in your phone or anything like that, uh, or any sort of radiation detector. I'm assuming it does it on, sort of, it makes assumptions on how you're using the phone, and it you know, gives sort of a general... Maybe heat, the heat it's giving off. Yeah, but I think it, not even that. I think it probably has like a spreadsheet, and it looks at you know general level of emission mm. due to phone calls and where you are in relation <coughs> to a mast 
and then it'll just say, you know, you're doing it too high. You should probably also point out that nuclear radiation and phone radiation is completely different. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's so ionizing radiation. It falls, it falls on a different part of the electromagnetic spectrum entirely, doesn't it? It warms things up, but it doesn't, like, break atoms or... I mean, you talk, you're talking here essentially radio, aren't you? you know, yeah, radio, yeah. radio waves, that sort of that sort of wavelength. So, yeah, Gil's right. I mean, this isn't this isn't obviously the radiation that we tend to talk about on this program, where, where um, you know, it, as Gil says, it ionizes things and it can actually ca- cause you a lot of harm. But yeah, I think it's quite interesting that Apple rejected it. And there's been criticism of Apple for rejecting it. Apple being <laughs> criticised for something. Conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, it, the interesting thing is the maker plate people have is, I love this one, uh, I wanted to love this app, which I, th- I think is a bit bizarre <laughs> anyway. Conceptually, this is such a fantastic idea. The major problem is, is that Talkon alerts me with obnoxious noises during every single phone call. So it turns out I might really not be that much of a danger to health. It's probably the Talkon app is more of a danger to health for noise pollution. <laughs> I found this um, study that was from a couple of years ago about how small doses of a small exposure to phone use actually reduced Alzheimer's in a sample of mice. So they gave really? a load of mice Alzheimer's, a basically. Mice. Yeah. Show. And they basically gave him um, Alzheimer's and then just let them use the phone for a certain amount of time a day. And then you eat the mice for using the phone as well. They rang the mice up. This is a bit of a chat with them. How's it going? That's a bit. Reduce. They're talking to them. Oh, they didn't actually talk to them. They just turned the phone on. The mice can't actually use phones, Maureen. I know. Improves socialisation between mice and Oh yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I think to me it's almost up in the air because you speak to people who are sort of experts on this stuff, and even they don't, you know, yeah. know unequivocally whether it's. And I, I think the interesting thing is you look at sort sort of same wave bands, like sub millimeter. So obviously they're using these stuff in airports. Issues have been raised about that now. So and expert experts coming out and say, hey, you know, it's great. We can use it for detection of you know dangerous substances in trucks, you know, as well as you know on the move, as well as uh, airports, you know, full body scanning. And now questions are being raised about this. But as you said, Gil, I think there seems to be some confusion with politicians as to the type of radiation. It comes under this umbrella of radiation, yeah. and then they inherently think it will have the same health effects as. Else. Not that I'm saying they're not they're not educated on this issue, but I do get the feeling that, <coughs> especially with Congress at the moment, I get the feeling because Congress is obviously subject to lobbying, you know, by phone companies, by big industrial players. You know, I don't know if there's something else. But, and I'm not I trying just, to be sound too cynical. But about I, it. I was about to say I was curious as to who the lobbyists would be in this case because he's financing the study. Yeah, type yeah, thing. Exactly, yeah, or like, yeah, who's trying to get Congress to look at it? I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure. Laptop admit- manufacturers. They want us to go back to like yeah. good old fashioned computers. Long line operators. <laughs> 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 like, massive boxes in the eighties that used to carry around with like. <laughs> they basically look like the huge satellite film. You know, phones from like Vietnam War. Yeah. Films. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So 
up in the air. Not really sure what to say about it until this report comes out. If it does come out, I'm not sure. You know, with it being the election this year as well, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if this will go through in time. Um, but yeah, we'll just uh, play it by ear and uh, see how it goes. Oh, oh, number two. <laughs> okay, guys, we're going to move on. Curiosity rover, NASA's mobile laboratory, landed on the surface of Mars recently and is powered by none other than plutonium. The multi-mission radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or MMRTG for short, <laughs> contains about 5 kilos of plutonium-238, which can potentially power the rover for approximately 14 years. The operation of the battery itself is actually beautifully simple. The radioactive plutonium generates heat by splitting into more stable atoms. This heat is used to cook a thermocouple, which leads to the generation of electricity. I'm pretty marvelled, actually, how simple the battery is, considering, you know, it, I know it's got plutonium in it, but when people say plutonium, it sounds pretty advanced, but it's almost like, you know, sort of Cold War stuff they're using, which Slate.com have picked up on. Um <laughs> Their article, when Curiosity landed on Mars, was not anything... Yeah, well done, NASA. Well done, you've done a good job. You've put this much money in and it's landed, not crashed. They put, Curiosity's dirty little secret. Need to send a rover to Mars? Stop. Stop by a Soviet nuclear weapons plant to borrow a cup of plutonium. That's what they put as their headline. <laughs> it's like, cheers, guys. Well done, NASA. You've, you've worked on this for years and we're just going to publish that headline. Um, seems to miss the point there. Yeah, it's <laughs> missed the point entirely. <laughs> loads of satellites and space missions have used like the same sort of thermocouple plutonium generators for years and years, yeah. and there's been concerns over the lack of the actual isotope plutonium and what the alternative would be or how they're going to manufacture more, which is why the US hasn't produced it since the late 80s, so they've had to get some from Russia. Which, I mean, there's no... There's no so, I mean, there's, I mean, you know, I, I get the feeling sort of articles like this are going, well, if they're getting five kilos from the Soviet, you know, the ex-Soviet Union, you know, for a rover, God knows what else they're getting. You know, it <laughs> sounds a bit... I mean, the first the first paragraph of this, I'm as happy as anyone that the Curiosity rover got to Mars. It's hard not to root for all those NASA geeks in their blue polo shirts. First sense I hate. But before you get all American and apple pie about it, there's something you should know. Curiosity runs on plutonium from a Soviet-era nuclear weapons plant. It's just like... Are you serious? Yeah, this, I'm not kidding. This is in print. And the interpreter's slightly misinformed. Take a look at the back of Curiosity. Other rovers have solar panels, but Curiosity doesn't. <laughs> Sounds like Alan Partridge wrote it. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think, first and foremost, I think it's a staggering achievement that they've managed to land this thing 
Oh, Mosca, the thing's massive. Yeah. It's a ma- and I think that's touching on the, so- the solar panel. You know, you look at the size of the rovers that have come before Curiosity, they're a hell of a lot of a smaller package and they require a lot, most, lot less electricity to run, whereas this thing is basically a behemoth in the rover community. So, you know, to land this thing... It makes it a lot more reliable, though, doesn't it? They can, yeah. they can do so much more using the battery instead of... Solar panels, which yeah. they have to stop every night, and yeah, they yeah, and they yeah, they can go further into the dark or yeah, it's faster and yeah, go, it, it basically can run in the dark. dark yeah. <laughs> this stuff is hot, so hot that the boxes glow bright red and will glow for years to come. <laughs> Think of it as nuclear charcoal. Fuel, I mean, I suppose the fuel will keep the rover toasty on coal marsh nights. It's a shame Toby isn't here to talk about this, because Toby did um, was looking at alternatives to plutonium-238 uh, generators. They're one of the visits we have on. They did that over a summer in uh, the National Nuclear Laboratory. And uh, one of the alternatives to look at was um, something we have lots of, using americium instead, because... The UK has like 100 tonnes of separated plutonium, and it's slowly part of it is decaying into americium, which is a good alternative to the plutonium. So you could extract it out and use that, which mm. would be kind of useful because it's kind of a bit crappy as it is because it's yeah. a radiation hazard. Getting power from waste. It's, yeah. a, it's a bit yeah. daft, though. They're portraying as a radiation hazard, and then they actually say later in the, um, later in the article, uh, plutonium-238 releases alpha, and it, you know, can't, which can't even penetrate a sheet of paper. So as long as you don't touch it or swallow it, plutonium-238, well, there's no one on bloody Mars that... T- <laughs> <laughs> we think. <laughs> but they used to use um, plutonium-238 in pacemakers. They tried it out as a yeah. pacemaker battery, didn't they? So they wouldn't, they wouldn't put it in a pacemaker if they didn't think it was... Well, they've done some stupid things. I mean, it, they, <laughs> they talk about it used in modern warheads and... Uh, it's used in modern warheads? Yeah, but they, yeah, they, they say well, they say it's almost all modern warheads in the US use plutonium two three nine as a oh, trigger yeah. when it explodes. It's that's one. But the problem is they're trying to portray two three eight and two three nine as the same. You make it in completely yeah, different yeah, which is making yeah. it in a completely yeah. different way. And you to say it's like oh. The Russians, I can't be reliant on them. She was in a space race with them. What happened? But I, I think um, <laughs> the idea that. Uh, you can't compare the two because obviously you have to generate a mass in a certain geometry. Yeah. To, so I don't, you know, again, to sort of rubbish. But anyway, getting more to the Curiosity rover, I was sort of, I mean, they've brought these images back already and they're great, aren't they? I mean, they've looked at these flats and they can see, like, where these, you know, there's been markings that look like there possibly could have been water at some point. Um, but this thing's like a... They don't need humans anymore after Curiosity. It looks a lot like Wally, for one thing, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got all different types of equipment on it, yeah. and it can do loads of experiments. and Dig up all the rocks. And... Yeah, it can it's do it all Lego in situ. As well. Yeah, what? This is Lego version. It's really good at sort of balancing out bumps so it doesn't jump all over the place. So. I mean, I, th- I personally think it's a staggering achievement, and I think it's testament to NASA, really, and all the people who've worked on it that are... Uh, you know, it's landed for one thing, and obviously NASA was saying if it crashed when it landed, they could have learned a lot from it and mm. take it. But it would have been gutting, wouldn't it? If it had all that very work, expensive failure, very expensive yeah. failure. But I think because they had to get it, they had to get it through a really small window in the atmosphere, didn't they? And at a very certain angle, very specific, and they had the nice little parachute coming out and everything. I thought it was well cool. I thought it was amazing. Sort of an offshoot from Curiosity. Obviously, Bernard Lovell died recently, and he. 
worked at Jodrell, well, he basically ran Jodrell Bank, he came up with Jodrell Bank. He was a massive guy at uh, the University of Manchester, so it was very sad that he passed away. He was obviously one of the guys behind Radar during the Second World War, so he had a huge influence on that. He basically can be perceived as one of the grandfathers of modern radio astronomy. So, obviously, a form of radiation, so detecting the very far reaches of space using can, the Lovell telescope. Can tell that Gunth is an ex-astronomer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that, you know, that, I mean, that radio telescope there, Drogo Bank, has discovered some great things. Mm. Obviously, the Sputnik, it, it detected yeah, it Sputnik. Them, yeah. It also uh, came across pulsars and also a, a myriad of astronomical effects out there, and I think it's... Uh, very sad that he's passed away, but he's going to have a very big legacy at the university. Also, Neil Armstrong died this month. I know yeah. this isn't to do with radiation, but I don't know what you guys thought. I was really shocked. I know it sounds really weird, but I was like, oh, Neil Armstrong. I mean, he is like in his 80s, but I was like, Neil Armstrong's dead. <laughs> he's a superhero that can never die. Yeah, to me, well, like when I was a kid, he was a. I think he was a hero, because right? everyone was oh, like, yeah. oh, anyone would have killed to go to the moon. But I was like, do you realise like how brave he had to have been to have gone into that thing, not really knowing? You know, there's an aspect of it. I mean, the, the technology they used to, you know, in the actual moon they got landing to the moon gear with slide rules. They didn't, yeah. have, they didn't even have pocket calculators. They used slide rules. That's what PhD students and engineering and physics students did with their summer holidays back in the day. They helped out NASA and did the calculations. But I think that's a testament. They punch cards. That's how they got to the moon. I think it's sad that obviously now that I mean it's going off on a tangent a bit here, but I think it's sad that human endeavour isn't a part of the US's future space strategy. Yeah. But then when you look at things like Curiosity and the fact that there are people actually looking at nuclear propulsion technology to get into far space or deep deeper space, so to speak, I do think sort of astronomy and nuclear together have got quite a bright future. Hopefully. Mm. God's future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, come on guys, <laughs> But yeah, let's move on anyway. So our next story, close confidence of the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have called for recognition from the international community that the diplomatic effort to stimmy Iran's nuclear programme has failed. The Deputy Foreign Minister has been recently quoted as saying that after such a declaration it will be clear that all options are on the table. However, sources within the Israeli government have claimed the cabinet remains deeply divided over Netanyahu's rhetoric, with several officials hinting at a climb-down strategy. Several sources also cite the country's economy as being the limiting factor in allowing Israel to attack the Islamic Republic state. So, what do we think of this? I mean, this is... I think this has developed pretty quickly over the last month. 
and it's gone quite serious quite quickly because Benjamin Netanyahu said quite a lot of things publicly. Let, I, let's say the Americans haven't really done much. So they haven't really responded. It's yet. a bad time for them, though, isn't it? Because with the presidential ele- elections mm-hmm. coming up, there's no there's no way they can come out and throw all their support behind it without losing. They don't followers. want to yeah. throw their support behind it. Exactly. They're so. worried that Israel will launch an attack and then they'll have to join in before the election. I think. Which is really not what they want to yeah. do. I think obviously it's rhetoric, isn't it? At the end of the day, but I think the fact that. They had the Israeli president who came out, and I think he basically he was let's say he was more on the side of a climb down strategy. It wasn't really on Netanyahu's side with it. Basically, aides to Netanyahu, I don't want to say basically told him to shut up, but they basically said, "Listen, you're not really integrated into the Israeli government, such that you know to talk, speak about these matters yeah. on an international stage." Which I found quite frightening. That. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about it in the discussion, but Israel have done this before with Iraq, so and they've gone ahead and done something. But I don't know if the, the situation with Iran is, I would argue, a lot more dangerous almost, because if they attack Iran, then, you know, Lord knows what will happen. Yeah, but, well, that's, uh, that's the problem. No one knows what will happen. They bombed a Syrian reactor in 2007, didn't they? Or a Syrian Oh, <coughs> a suspected Syrian reactor. Yeah, yeah. or a yeah. suspected Syrian reactor. <coughs> and and then in the 80s, they did, what country was it they bombed in the 80s over it? Well, they bombed... They Sorry, b- the 80s for... Or it was a reactor. That they bombed they Iraq in 1991. Um... The, uh, it was a nuclear reactor in 1991. Oh, okay. uh, I'll, t- I'll touch about that in the discussion, um, and I'll touch about what Iraq did in retaliation. But I don't know. I feel like the US should be compelled to do something, or someone should, because Netanyahu has a lot of power in that government, obviously, is the prime minister, but there seem to be quite a few people on his side about it. I mean, the deputy foreign minister saying that it will be clear all options are on the table. It may well be sort of muscle flexing almost yeah. and trying to intimidate Iran but it's quite disconcerting that they would just come out publicly and say this I, I'm just quite surprised how quickly the situation has developed from Netanyahu saying like an offhand comment to almost like a sort of indirect power struggle in Israeli government between these people deciding on policy well they're, they're coming there... to a point now where they, they're worried that Iran are getting to a, a stage in their development of nuclear enrichment facilities that they they won't be able to deal with it on their own and they're sort of feeling a bit helpless they want to either deal with it on their own now or they're going to have to lose face by declaring that they need the u.s (coughs) help which is they're they're worried iran is reaching the immunity zone which is what they cause like because they're moving their enrichment enrichment facilities underground that that israel won't have like the US probably would, but the U- the Israel definitely doesn't have the military capability to stop them on their own. Yeah, yeah. So that's. I think the situation could be even more dangerous. With what scares me is that during this elect this US like election campaign already, the Republican candidate Mitt Romney has has really demonstrated how great he is at um, foreign relations. I mean, he was obviously quoted as saying that um, Israel had basically asserted their authority in the region through providence which is like such a dangerous thing to say and it disconcert i find it very disconcerting i'm not sure if obama has i mean i know it sounds uh 
you know, almost like you know me being cynical and electioneering. But if I was Obama, I'd actually come out and say something because surely the Republicans would have to, in terms of the U.S. election now, they would have to come out and say, you know, Romney's camp would have to come out and say something. But saying that, it'd be, it could be quite damaging yeah. <laughs> when I've just thought about in it. Maybe that's why. Yes, in an effort to get this slightly back on yeah, topic, exactly. <laughs> less about politics. Um, the the reason it seems strange that. Um, Israel would say this because the whole point of what Iran's doing is it's nuclear hedging, so it's enriching lots of material up to uh, a limit where it, it can legally do that, mm-hmm. and building up stockpiles of it so it won't take very long for it to enrich it further to uh, weapons grade if it wanted to. is It's essentially sort of what it's doing, although the reason they say is for some um, research reactor. But um, the, the whole problem is that if you're going to pressure them, they're more likely to just sort of flip the switch and decide to just go for it, in which case... It wouldn't be too long until they could actually produce a usable weapon. I say too long; it'll be be order of several months. Yeah. Mm. So we we did a debate on this, and they've they've got lots and lots and lots of centrifuges which don't really have a purpose, and they're hiding them, and they split them up, and all this, that, and the other. It seems it's two sets of centrifuges, doesn't it? It is old ones from Pakistan, which aren't as good, which won't really have the military capability, and then there's. Or um, or will take a lot longer, long, yeah. and then it's got new ones which ha- it has installed, but are not being used yet. I think that's and when the IAEA went to visit, they were clearly not being used. I think the thing with centrifuges, I don't know whether people would know, is that the diameter of the centrifuges affects the um, enrichment potential mm. you have. Separative work units. Is what yes, they use. Gills will be better at it. explain that's... explain how it makes a big difference. Well, it's basically, it's, centrifuges they have, yeah. It's basically just centripetal. I mean, if, yeah. for people out there who got a basic knowledge of physics, it's just F equals MV squared over R, isn't it? So, <laughs> uh, there you go, guys. Check that out on Wikipedia. <laughs> but yeah, as you said, the diameter of the centrifuge, or let's say the radius, has an impact on how much you can separate the two yeah. isotopes from each other. This is why for years and years the states have been trying to work on making bigger centrifuges compared to the ones which are produced by Urenco. And they've tried to make much bigger ones, which would work much better. Unfortunately, they're really heavy, so trying to get them to spin around <laughs> doesn't work very well. Yeah. And they've been working on this since 1980s, so for nearly 30 years now, and still have managed to make it work. And it's just been an absolute pit of money, but they seem to want to invest in it more so they can have their own centrifuge technology, even though if they just adopt everyone else's, they'd be fine, but they just want to try and use some ridiculous, more advanced technique, which doesn't really work because it's really hard to get around the engineering problems. But that, but that's the thing that inspectors look at. They look at the size of the centrifuges, mm. and so it's not just like, oh, we're taking Iran's word for it that they can only get up to this percentage. You know how yeah, much you they know, get up. you know. And from the that side. when they look went to look at the old ones from Iraq, you can see even that they've been removed, or this is the idea that you could see what diameter they had been. So you could tell from like cascading and everything else like yeah. that, couldn't you, if you've got several cascades? You can see, they work out exactly what sort of, because if you look up online, you can even see what they've done in reports, they say so many separate work units mm-hmm. or whatever, and then you can work out how quick they can enrich the material up to weapons grade and the bomb amount of material. Yeah. Uh, right, well, I think that sort of led us to a natural point on the discussion, because we'll sort of get into more where Iran are at, and what they're up to and whether they're doing anything wrong but yeah we're going to move on with our discussion now which is going to centre on Iran
It was once said that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it, and so it is with Israel. In 1981, Israel bombarded the Osirak nuclear reactor within Iraqi borders, triggering an act of retaliation by Iraq in 1991, when Hussein ordered the firing of Scud missiles at Israel. And so, 20 years have passed, we arrive at a sort of similar crossroads, with Israel once again in the political fray, but on this occasion, the Islamic Republic of Iran is in the crosshairs. However, why have Iran become the centre of attention on the political stage? How have Western nations arrived at the conclusion that Iran has a potential to manufacture nuclear weaponry? And if so, why should we care? So, guys, so what, how have Iran arrived at this point? Like, why, why are they the centre of attention? We should, I suppose we should sort of explain on a very basic level. Um, I think what everyone thinks is that what a civil nuclear programme looks like and what Iran are doing is slightly different because they have one um, reactor that's used for producing electricity and they have, is it one or two research? They're building their own research reactor. I think they, they build one, one Tehran, already. yeah. And they have, um, they have lots and lots of contracts where they get in their fuel for that and they will do for a long time. Yet they're slowly building up a bigger and bigger enrichment capacity, which is something they don't need. And if they were, they'd have gone about it differently, especially since they've got their original um, centrifuges from the AQ car network, which was a lot of people did that. Hey, Hugh Carney keeps coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just uh, a network of just managing to get illegal materials for weapons and he was very good at doing that so. well, yeah, well, I mean A.Q. Khan was a Pakistani nuclear yeah. scientist wasn't he, he basically so set up a brochure for <laughs> yeah but I mean A.Q. Khan was sort of the facilitator and sort of with Libya as well at yeah, one point wasn't it Libya, yeah. yeah so yeah I suppose that's as we said like in the news story as well it was almost the enrichment capacity of these things they have the potential to enrich or to a higher level because that's what you need for weapons grade uranium so saying that though if they do have the potential to enrich up to that level what if any evidence do the west have that they can produce warheads do they have this evidence we've 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 been through this loads haven't we (laughs) we've discussed this lots there's been there's been some evidence of the fact they've brought in lots of was it high speed cameras so they can look at heavy metal um they can look at the fusion of heavy metals together as if it was making an implosion device. Yeah. Uh, they've they've built, purchased and done research into lots of um, very quick timing mechanisms so they can set, detonate explosives really quickly so they can fuse things together. Although they claim all these things are for mining purposes. Which mm. is, they, they, they claim this because it is dual-use technology. It can be used for certain mining. I don't know exactly what it is. but So they claim it's for that reason, but it does sound rather suspicious. And other things such as how they can adjust their uh, some of their missiles to holding a rather nice spherical device which would almost look identical to a nuclear bomb if you could fit it in that hole. So it's it's all there've been all these investigations into it and they've found all these little bits of evidence, but again it's dual use technology. There's mm. no sort of actual smoking gun, I think is there. Yeah. No, they're, they're acting very suspiciously as well. I mean with the, the detonation research they've allegedly been doing as soon as the inspectors asked to go and see it they conveniently um, sort of wiped the plant off the face of Iran <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't su- suggest any sort of guilt clearly but well, they, they, found, they found evidence of them doing implosion tests with surrogate materials but again that's also indicative of even though they, they apparently they, hit, they tried to hide that but they found material scattered around evidence of it happening but they 
yeah, that's that's sort of indicative of what they were trying to do. But mm-hmm. it, again, dual use technology. Yeah. So. How much of it is, is likely though, or is there a chance that Iran is trying to make the West and Israel think that it is further along or has greater nuclear weapons intentions than it has to avoid being attacked by? Do you know what I mean? As in, is there almost a like a fool's gold? Yeah, type. exactly. Yeah. Is there a benefit to making yourself look more dangerous than you actually are to avoid? You know, kind of try and create this idea of mutually assured destruction. Well, well there's certainly there's certainly. I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? Unless they're hoarding money, because obviously they've got a lot of problems over there with, you know, the economy at the moment, and especially with these new sanctions coming through, or hopefully coming yeah. through. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's been the case. I mean, you could argue it's almost with North Korea in a sense. You know, that sort of, you know, their the propaganda states that they've, you know, yeah. they have that power to, you know. But surely there comes a point when they're about to be. Bond that they're going to have to come clean and say, oh, "Look, we don't actually have this." World yeah, it would be a pr- it'd be yeah. like the world's crappiest foreign strategy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 got, well, no, 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 we don't have. A, <laughs> 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 don't you? Um, took it too far. Sorry, yeah. but I think the interesting thing is, is misconception is this is obviously the media have highlighted this. Let's say last decade, this has come to the fore. But the program actually started in the nineteen fifties. Uh, well, it, was it definitely po- was a nuclear weapons program. No, it definitely wasn't a nuclear weapons, but the sort you can see that the sort of the uh, the problem. What the, what I should explain is in the nineteen fifties, the America, along with other Western powers, came up with the Atoms for Peace program, which was essentially to let's say control but promote the sort of civilian side of nuclear power, but. The problem was, I suppose, with other issues in the Middle East and Asia, that US intervention in things tends to make things a lot more murky because the Iranian revolution in the 70s, when the West were obviously helping, they were helping Iran to build up a share nuclear reactor, the Western powers basically fled. Uh, So Germany, who were, I think they were the principal contractor behind building that reactor, in 79 they fled the country because of the revolution. And... Basically, Ayatollah Khomeini, I think he was Iranian, he was he was high in the Iranian Republic in 1989 after his death. He, he basically really didn't like the idea of nuclear weapons and he actually spoke it down. But after his death in 89, then you see a rapid yeah. expansion. Uh, interesting, uh, Bashara, which I just mentioned, the reactor which was started in by Germany in 1975, was only completed last year by the Russian utility company Rosatom, or should I say the nuclear builders, Rosatom, and which I find quite alarming. It's taken 36 years on and off to build this reactor. We obviously mentioned, me and Gil did a debate quite a while ago in Iran, and we said one of the issues as to why they should stop their program is because of safety considerations. The idea that Bashar is near fault lines as well as it being built intermittently over 30 years. If you imagine Germany had an idea to build a reactor there, they had a certain policy in mind, certain infrastructure in place. They built the, yeah, they, they built the building, then Russia comes in you know, 15 years later, has a different design. So it's essentially trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. So there's no idea as to how the integrity of the structure is around the actual reactor itself. And um, bear in mind, it's near, you know, several fault lines and this has obviously become an issue in you know the last year with Fukushima happening uh, and these natural disasters occurring that maybe that should be the focus of western governments as opposed to 
weapons. Isn't it also the thing you found out that it was grossly understaffed? Yeah, that, well, there's been report again. Uh, we're talk, we're talking about there's no smoking gun. There's been reports understaffed. It doesn't really follow IAEA regulations in terms of safety considerations or general staffing safety considerations. Let's say. I think it's difficult, isn't it? And I was always curious why they never followed that route, saying, you know, ensuring these places are safe. I know it sounds a bit clandestine to go in and do that and then rip the carpet from under them, you know, all of a sudden, but... A bit too late for that, I think, to... Yeah. <laughs> We're the... here for safety. Yeah. <laughs> We're here for safety, guys. <laughs> uh, no, it, it should be... Iran should be allowed to have a nuclear power programme. I mean, a civil nuclear programme, everyone has the right to that, but their programme at the moment probably shouldn't continue the way it is because it's not really the quite quite the right route to having a civil nuclear program that's peaceful. It's if they wanted to have a civil nuclear program to produce lots of, you know, nuclear based energy, they'd be doing it much differently to what they are at the moment, which is I find it ironic actually that Oppenheimer it was obviously one of the voices of disarmament, which in itself is ironic because he was the father of the bomb. <laughs> but he basically devoted his life after 1945 to getting rid of the nuclear bomb and I find it quite ironic that Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace program has generated a more fraught foreign geopolitical landscape now than there was in the 60s arguably I mean obviously the Cold War between Russia and the US but I'm saying in general they've got all these countries now that are sort of let's say, in the danger zone. <laughs> I do find it quite ironic that they've generated, out of trying to generate a peaceful nuclear programme, you could argue that it's almost generated a more tense situation. Well, yeah. there's the whole, the Arms for Peace, I think this is right, because someone from AWE, I was chatting with a historian from there, was saying, I don't know how, how they said that, I assume it's true, because they said this, obviously, um, that the uh, India, when they produced their first atomic weapon, they, they produced from plutonium. And the separations technology they used to get plutonium out of reactor material, they got that through atoms for peace. So through atoms for peace, they got something which they should be using peacefully, but they just used it to make a bomb. So <laughs> it's <laughs> dual-use technology. It's <laughs> yeah, I mean, proliferation and you know security issues are obviously inherent within any nuclear tech. But I do find it interesting that with this atoms for peace program has actually generated atoms for... Well, War purposes. Yeah. <laughs> the US policy is kind of now at the stage that they've never successfully, like, if a country wants nuclear weapons, they're going to get nuclear weapons. They're going to either buy them off someone else or they're going to get their own scientists. They will Probably eventually. Probably won't them. buy them off someone else. But, okay, okay, yeah, well, do you know what I mean? As in, Pakistan bought them off someone else. India developed them themselves. Like, if countries want nuclear weapons, they can Wait, get them. Did Pakistan buy them off someone else or they produce them themselves? If you can. Hey, you can't. Was yeah, Pakistani. Yeah, but like, as in using, I thought it was with UK nuclear. No, no, technology. it was Khan um, went back, worked for Urenko, who made the centrifuges. He went back to Pakistan, and then he imported all the materials you needed to produce. Hey, I know how to build. <laughs> and then he very cleverly, after they put huge sanctions on Pakistan, very cleverly found sort of cheeky routes to getting the materials he wanted to without being detected. So he managed to produce them, even though there were loads of sanctions stopping him doing that. So he was really good at it. Aqu Khan was hailed as a hero in Pakistan when he managed to do it for obvious reasons. <laughs> 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 the bill get it, and the point that the US policy is is that you have to persuade them to want to give it up. So South Africa and Libya 
were both persuaded and voluntarily, ultimately voluntarily gave them up. Like, you threatening to bomb a country is not going to force them to give up their nuclear weapons. Yeah, that's that's what your policy yeah, has yeah. been. I think talking about policy then, if we get onto the non-proliferation treaty, I think Iran is a, is it, is a signatory? Yeah, it, it, it is. is a signature of the MPT. So I think it sort of almost... Demon- yeah. <laughs> I'll check it now. I'll check it now. I think it sort of demonstrates some of the inherent limitations of that treaty, surely, doesn't it? They've, they've got such uh, strong links with terrorism, apparently, that it, it sort of puts that treaty... The, makes it a bit irrelevant, really, when terrorists are operating in and around Iran and the Middle East... It makes it so much easier for them to get their hands on it if there's these sort of civilian fuel cycle facilities. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's a bit of a worry, regardless of whether they've signed the mm-hmm. treaty or not. And and another thing the US is worried about is not just that terrorists actually getting the weapons, but that Iran could more openly sponsor terrorists and other rogue nations. I don't know there were nations more rogue than Iran, but anyway. And be there like you can't do anything to us. We have nuclear weapons. See, this is, this is the thing that I, I remember about um, at some proliferation conference. They were saying that, that people say that, but in reality that's just something that countries like the States say to generate fear. Because in reality there's absolutely no country in the world, no matter how insane, that would produce an atomic weapon and then hand it over to someone unstable. <laughs> Even if they're unstable themselves and they're associated with but, them, they'd be like, well, I've got it, screw you. But, but that's it, but that's, it. That's, that's not the point, that they wouldn't give it to terrorists and they wouldn't give it to rogue states but they could more openly sponsor terrorists and other rogue states and there's much less comeback for the West because Iran is like well we have nuclear weapons now you're completely terrified of us yeah, yeah I, I mean I should yeah. say that sorry basically it would be an absolutely awful awful, <laughs> awful situ- situation if Iran had nuclear weapons I, I should say that um, Iran are party to the MPT and it's been found, obviously, to be in non-compliance with it. Uh, so, uh, wow, I shouldn't... That was a harsh criticism. It's obvious, though, they haven't done anything strictly illegal. Yeah, yeah but, well, let's say to Western governments, it's they well, feel they, it's they, obvious. They feel it's <laughs> actually, in the MPT, I don't think they've actually broken any of the rules. But at the end of the day, it is just a piece of paper, essentially. I think yeah. third world countries have been said it's the nuclear haves forcing a... Yeah. Set of rules on the have not and the nuclear have not countries. To me, I, I you know, I bring I, I, people bring up that analogy time and time again. It's like kids in the playground having, you know, do you remember when rock ports were out? Oh, and my all God. the kids had rock ports, right? And I never had a pair of rock ports. I, I was, I was like around. I felt, I felt, you know, from the toys <laughs> out the pram and whatever. Well, obviously, I was like 14, so I wasn't in a pram. Um, but <laughs> I do think it's that sort of mentality, though, isn't it? Why have you Why have you got this? What you know, and I haven't type thing. And also, they've put rules on them to ensure that they don't have them. I mean, do you think that's one of the inherent flaws of that yeah. policy? I mean, especially when the US are sort of uh, dictating it, and they're the only country to have ever used a nuclear bomb in yeah. sort of open warfare. It's you can sort of see why they get a bit angry, but then again coming from a small country that doesn't have nuclear weapons you would think I'd be like oh no no, in other situations I would normally be like yeah it is totally unfair but I'm glad the west or the powerful countries dictating but like you don't want countries having nuclear weapons in general and at least the US and the UK I suppose and France they're like well you know they do have 
safety checks and things like that and like democratic governments and checks and balances and are able to protect their weapons from falling into enemy hands or bad people's hands much more so than let's say small African countries some middle Middle Eastern countries and stuff Mm. so like it's kind of fair enough that by and large well yeah they have to put some sort of safe safeguards in yeah. place but as you said Maureen if they want a bomb chances are they're yeah. You know, yeah. probably going to get hold of that bomb in some capacity or another bombing them is just going to slow down the process rather than stop it and so it's, it's, it's going to slow it down and inflame relations yeah. yeah as I said in the opening salvo with Iraq in the 90s I mean that was a really te- obviously Israel did not then subsequently retaliate but that was obviously through persuasion through the UN and the Western governments, because obviously they realised the situation at that point was so fraught. And the US obviously were involved in the Gulf War directly. They didn't, you know, it was almost, I don't have, we don't have time for this. You know, stop, stop, you know, stop doing this to each other because it's, you know, going to tear the world apart. But as I said, that's, as we said in the news story, the sentiment being displayed by Israel at the moment, I actually find sort of frightening, and I wasn't expecting it. Um, Obviously they've come out and said in the past things quite harshly and whatever, but, you know, considering they're saying to a country who... At the moment, are run by a government that really do, you know, spout some really, you know, vitriolic rhetoric. Then, you know, I, I, I'd be very surprised if something doesn't happen. But, yeah. The new report, kind of like that, came out at the end of August, was quite like, no, seriously, they they're they're developing weapons. I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, close. the interesting they're, they're thing, very close to developing weapons. The interesting thing was the TIA reports quite close together seem to have changed their tack within yeah. a couple of months yeah. which I found quite strange I don't know the reasoning for that obviously there could be some sort of influence I've um, read that on the world nuclear news they described the most recent one the most recent report as using marginally sterner language yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> slightly than the previous angry. one that yeah. was done in the same year which I found yeah. if you do read I remember reading the summary section and I was like so whoa <laughs> yeah it's long but I was like wow they've completely changed their Word. It's like they've had inspectors there, aren't they? Out undercover. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, do, how do you think the situation will resolve itself? Then, do you, I mean, do you think there is any clear solution, or what? I don't know. The you don't long, know. The longer it goes on, the more Iran are just sat there chilling and making more enriched uranium. There is this thing though that if you put in really, really stringent measures on Iran. It'll take, I can't remember what, what it was, what was it like 8 to 15 years or something before Iran would, or was it less than that? I can't remember, before Iran would actually have such a huge problem that they would have to cave and do anything, otherwise people are outright going to die, there's going to be riots, it's going to go absolutely off the chain. Because of that... I, like think, people... I think it was the green, wasn't it the green pie a few years ago in Iran? There was like a mini sort of, during the elect, wasn't there elections, and there was like... Huge protests going on. I think it demonstrates how fraught the situation is there. Because, green revolution. Yeah, the green revolution. Of, yeah, yeah, but sorry, why? Why is it eight to fifteen years for sanctions to? Because um, basically, uh, I think it's to do with actually managing to emplace certain embargoes. Uh, the fact that their ability to then farm things, mine things, etc., will start to run out, and their ability to import things for electricity compared to what they've stockpiled. And yeah, sure. I think the countries like if I'm, I think I remember reading that China are against yeah the opposition the yeah. against Iran. So if they've got the sort of half backing of countries like China, that it's not it's going to take a while for yeah. it to. I think really it'd be very. In, I think it'd be very interesting actually, 
uh, from a political perspective, how Russia would react to all of this or will react to it. Because obviously, as I said, they've got interests in Iran, just like in the same sense, obviously at the moment there's quite a moral debate around Syria and Russia have got interests in Syria. I'd be very uh, very curious to know what position Russia will fall on the fence with Rosatom being involved in proceedings in Iran with their nuclear um Tech, I, I kind of think that China and Russia obviously don't want to go to war with mm. Israel and the US to defend Iran. They're not that good allies or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is, the sanctions are ineffective from because China and Russia don't get behind them. They don't block them. But like, if China still buys your oil mm. or whatever, yeah. or China still invests, you're fine, basically. So it kind of seems ridiculous that you would jump to kind of military strikes and being like, oh, we're going to bring out our nukes before yours kind of thing when you haven't even got full-blown sanctions on so there probably is presumably some way to go there where china and russia will either kind of cave or kind of use their political influence and say calm down for a while guys kind of thing and um, presumably before i think it's quite interesting though because you look at it and the way russia reacted with syria i found quite curious because they don't really have that many interests in syria it's not like a big interest they have is not huge oil and all that, uh, which I found quite surprising that they came out in quite stark opposition to the rest of the West, but you know, I suppose we'll see how it goes but, um, mm. Does anyone have anything else to say on Iran? No. No? Before we go then guys, a few things I want to say I tweeted, oh, oh god, <laughs> get ready for this, I tweeted a time-lapse map of every nuclear explosion that's happened since oh, 1945. Yeah. It is quite a long video, but I assure you, do wait for it, because halfway through the video, before the test ban treaty came in, that whole map lights up with a Christmas tree over like the period of three months. Like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's quite hilarious. <laughs> do watch that, it's really interesting. Uh, yeah, we have been trying to tweet. As I said, me and Gail have sort of been out of action because of Vivers and first-year reports and whatever. Yeah, do stick with us, guys. Really thankful for the support. We're getting more followers, which is great. Do tweet us any questions you've got, any news-related stories, because we have been, I've found, like, over the last week, we've been getting people tweeting us news, which is good. Uh, some guy, chap from Belgium did, and uh, a lad from Wales has tweeted us a few stories, which is cool. And, yeah, thanks for the support. Um, we really hope you're enjoying the shows and whatever. But, yeah. I suppose I suppose that's it really. Anything else? No? No? Okay. Okay guys, it's bye from us. Bye. bye.